The excitement had been building for weeks, even, even months, as people prepared for their Passover trip. I mean, picture it, the letters back and forth to Jerusalem and the surrounding area, trying to connect with maybe relatives or a friend you haven't spoken to in a long time, hoping to arrange some place to stay during that crowded time. Collecting provisions, stockpiling things, getting ready for the long trip, packing up the whole family, making sure you had everything you were going to need for the trip down and back. A lot of preparations. And as the excitement continued to build, the day came closer where it was finally time to go. So you get up early, pack up all the things, check, double check, triple check, make sure we've got everything we need. Make sure everything's packed nice and neatly and tightly. Load it into the wagon or onto the back of an animal. Grab the kids. Make sure they're all cleaned up. Everybody's got their jacket. One last trip to the bathroom and we're off. All right? And you got the kids and you're heading out. And you can just picture all of these families coming from after all of that excitement. Everything's kind of bubbling over and now it's finally here. Time to head to the big city for the big celebration. And as they come out of these villages and they wander down these pathways and these small roads that eventually merge into bigger roads and bigger roads, the crowd continues to grow. And as they go, they're singing and they're talking. They're telling stories about last year's Passover or the one before that or the one when I was a kid. They're listening to questions and asking questions. Who are we going to see? Where are we going to stay? What will happen? What will it be like this year? Well, we have time in the city to stop and eat there or to go and see this place. And so as they're, they're experiencing all of this as a family, the excitement continues to build. And it builds and intensifies with every family that gets swallowed up in this wave of humanity, flooding down the hills and the roads, working its way up to the city of Jerusalem for worship. But this one is different. This Passover is different than the other ones they had experienced. They were used to the level of excitement and to the whole process. Some dreaded it, some looked forward to it. But in the excitement as everything built and they started heading towards Jerusalem on this particular day, on this Passover week, something changed. And as they got closer to the city, they could look across the valley and they could see the, the walls of the city and, and the wall of the temple it was as though somebody flipped a switch. The intensity built, the excitement just, just went to a whole new level. As people were calling out this name, it's Jesus. And as you've fallen along and you merged with that crowd, you, you heard the singing and the chanting and the cheering, and you're looking around saying, what's different this time? And meanwhile, strangers are grabbing you and saying, we need your coat, throw your coat on the road, he's coming. Go cut some palm branches, wave them around, throw them on the ground. The King is coming. The Messiah is here. Incredible. You can imagine the, the questions, the confusion, and the excitement that had built on this particular day. Meantime, back in the city, for just as long, preparations were being made at the temple. I mean, the Passover rush was something to behold. And they had to get all the supplies ready. They had to get everything shined up and ready to go because they were going to be overwhelmed for more than a week with unbelievable crowds. Nobody was given vacation time during Passover rush. They all had to be on hand. All hands on deck. 
If you had anything to do with worship at the temple, you were, you were showing up. Because it was going to be nonstop, wall-to-wall services and sacrifices all week long. The crowds were going to start early and they wouldn't stop. It was just going to be something to behold. And so they planned ahead. They stockpiled everything they needed. They even went out and they chased the Gentiles out of the outer court. Who wants them anyway? Get them out of here. We need the space. We have tables to set up. We have to, we have to get our money changers in place so that when the people come in for worship, they can bring their currency and we can trade it for our special temple currency. And then once they've changed that and paid us, of course, appropriate exchange rates, then they can take that special currency. They can walk across the courts, fight their way into a lineup at the other tables where there's cages and pens all set up so that they can buy from us at special Passover prices, they can buy from us the animals needed for sacrifice. So that's all in place. The Gentiles are gone. The tables are set. The animals are in place. The money changers are good to go. Everybody's ready to go. And the crowds start showing up. The crowds start showing up. And inside, a little closer in to where the action was really taking place, worship continued. And people came for worship on that first day of the week, that Sunday morning as they did every day. The Romans had taken every day of the week and assigned to it a name that would honor and worship and exalt one of their gods. We still use those names today. The Romans had done that. So that every day they knew this day was dedicated to a certain god. Well, ancient rabbinic um, sources tell us that the Jews had responded to that. And that they had developed a, a liturgy that they would use. So that every single day in the worship of God, at the temple, every single day, they would go through a different psalm that would celebrate, announce, and declare the kingship of God. That every day is for Him. And these sources tell us that on the first day of the week, Sunday, the psalm that would be used for that purpose is Psalm 24. Psalm 24, where we read the words, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So outside, you have this parade. You have all of these people, thousands of people, streaming towards the city. You have hundreds, if not thousands, gathered around Jesus, singing and praising Him clearing the path for him to make his way into town. He is, of course, fulfilling prophecy, as we just read with Pastor Marty here in, in Matthew chapter 21. He's fulfilling the words of Zechariah the prophet, riding in on a, on a donkey. And as he comes in, people see the donkey, and maybe their minds go back to that prophecy. The Messiah will come, and he will come riding on a donkey. Maybe their minds are, are clicking back into 1 Kings chapter 1 and the, the record of Solomon's coronation where Solomon is led in to be, to be crowned king on David's donkey. And this time, though, they're saying this isn't just a son of David, another son of David, another descendant of David. This is the son of David. And the crowds are chanting and the crowds are singing and they're saying, Hosanna to whom? 
the son of David. Not a son, the son of David. The promised one. And they're calling out Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna came to be used as a word of praise. It really means save or actually help. God save us. And they're singing Hosanna to the the Son of David. They're looking at Jesus and saying, God is going to help us and save us and deliver us like only He can. And He's going to do it through you because you are the promised Messiah, the rescuer, the deliverer we've been waiting for. And the people are just overwhelmed with this and they're calling out to Him, Hosanna to the Son of David. The Messiah is here. They're singing that messianic psalm we looked at on this Sunday last year, Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing these ancient hymns of praise. And as they come through the gates into the city, people in the city, those crowds are now starting to hear what's going on and they say, who is this? And the answer comes back. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Were they right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not that many steps away. Inside the temple. Inside the temple courts. People were singing this ancient song, psalm of praise. And in doing so, they are asking the question, who is this king of glory? And the answer comes back, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Were they right? Absolutely. The two groups just didn't connect it together. They just didn't bring it together to its completion. Well, throughout the early weeks of spring that year, preparations had been made thoroughly for Passover. Whether you stayed home or made the trip, Preparations at the temple, preparations for the challenges of travel. People were prepared to praise God and sing His praises. They were prepared to come for acts of sacrifice. But in all that preparation, had they really caught what Jesus had told them to do to prepare? See, when Jesus came and started His ministry of preaching, He had a very simple message. And in all of his teaching, he kept coming back to this message throughout these few years of ministry. Mark chapter 1 tells us in verse 15 that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Prepare your heart. Get right with God. Turn back to Him and come to Him on His terms. Because God is in fact coming. His promised one is here. The kingdom's at hand. The question is, are you truly ready? Hmm. Well, politically they were ready. I mean, the people were good to go. Get the Romans out of here and give us our land back. Spiritually, only a few. Only a few were truly ready for who Jesus is and what he was about to do. Hmm. Well, the question for us today in 2019, as we come to Palm Sunday this morning, is very similar. 
to one that was being asked 2,000 years ago, one that was being asked 1,500 years before that. Are you and I ready? Are we prepared for the arrival of the King? Are we prepared for the arrival of the King? Am I? Are you? We weren't there on Palm Sunday, right? Nobody here is that old? No. There's mornings you feel like it, but no. We're not that old. We were not there on Palm Sunday to be swallowed up in that parade, chanting and singing praises to Jesus. We were not there that Sunday morning to be pushing our way through the crowds at the temple, waiting for our opportunity for sacrifice. But we do have the opportunity to be there at the next great parade, at the arrival of the King. And the question is, will we be? How do we prepare for the arrival of the King to make sure we're ready? Well, we're going to take a look this morning as you join me in Psalm 24. We're going to look at this psalm, this song about the King, a song that asks questions that we still must ask today and a song that calls for actions that we still must take today. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 24 as we address the question this morning, how do I prepare for the arrival of the King? Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we are asking that you would speak clearly to us, that you would grab our attention and focus our hearts on who you are, on how to be right with you and ready, ready for the arrival of the King. We pray that you would do your work in our hearts as we meet around your word now. In Jesus' name we ask it all. Amen. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The first thing we have to do if we are going to be prepared for the arrival of the king is we have to properly identify the king. We have to know who it is we're talking about. Who it is we're looking for and waiting on. Who it is we are to be worshipping even now as we wait for his arrival. And this psalm leaves no question as to who that is. From the very first words, the earth is whose? The Lord's. You'll notice in your English translation before you today that the word Lord is in all capital letters. We've talked about this before. If it was just a capital L and a lowercase o-r-d, that would be a, a title. But it's not. And whenever you're reading and you see four capital letters there, all uppercase, L-O-R-D, that is the translation we have of God's personal name, God's redemptive name. Yahweh, Jehovah, there's arguments over how to pronounce it. Why? Because the people, the Orthodox, wouldn't even pronounce the name. They wouldn't use vowels, so they didn't write out the whole name. They worshipped His name as a holy name. But this is who David is talking about. The Lord. God Himself, God of the universe, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. God is the earth's creator, therefore God is the earth's owner. 
period. Not only did God create the earth, and therefore he owns the earth, God is the creator of all who live in it and on it. Whoever have, whoever will, and each of us who are still breathing right here, right now. God is the creator of all who live on it, and therefore he is the owner of all who live on it. Period. No question. End of statement. The earth is his and it will be. All people belong to him and will answer to him. It doesn't matter when and where you live. God is your rightful king. Period. God is your rightful king. Oh, you've, you've made it very clear, maybe. No, I answer to no one. This is my life and I'm in charge. That does not change the fact that God created you. He is your king. You will answer to him. Maybe you say, well, I've gone too far. I've run too long and too hard in the other direction. There's no way he would want me back. That does not change the fact that God created you. He owns you. And he has called out to you to turn around and embrace his rescue. God has the only legitimate claim on your life. Period. All of us. He alone is king. So the question that comes then right at the beginning of this psalm is, well, who or what do you worship? Who do you bow before? What do you exalt as as the most important thing? What do you live for? What do you think about as you're lying on your bed at night? Is it yourself or some other person or some experience or some things that you want to have or achieve? What is it? Or is it God? Who do you worship? Have you identified the king properly? Do you understand that God spoke this place into existence, including you, and he owns it all, including you? He is the king, period. A, a quote, children's movie, animated movie, just hit the theaters this weekend, called The Missing Link. Sasquatch. It, it, on the surface, purports to be just a simple children's movie. It has some transgender things going on, but it also promotes evolution and the bad guys are the people who believe in God and creation. That is the world in which we live. Around the globe. Throughout human history, that is the world in which we live. That is how the people of Harrow think. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates... That's how they think. They refuse to see God as the king that he is because they do not want to bow the knee to him. But the question this morning is not, what does all the world think? The question is, where do you stand? Have you identified properly who the king is? Not filling in that role with anything or anyone else that just cannot measure up. Have you embraced God as the king? Clear statement here without question. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the the rivers. God is king. In order to be prepared for the arrival of the king, you have to know who he is. God 
is the king. But once you know who he is, you have to be prepared to meet him. Preparing to meet the king takes us to a whole new level, doesn't it? Verse 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who? Now there's questions here about just the layers here. What did David intend straight out? What did he intend as maybe some layers? What did God intend as some layers to this even as David wrote? Is it possible that, that when he says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, he's talking about the Temple Mount? Or that he's even talking about heaven? Who shall stand in, in his holy place? Is he talking about the Holy of Holies or, or the very throne room? In the wilderness, only one man could ascend the hill of the Lord. Moses. No one else was even allowed to touch the mountain. Only Moses could go and meet with God. At the temple, how many people could go into the Holy of Holies? One. Just one. Until? Until Jesus. Until Jesus marched straight through to the Father and invited us to come along with Him. Invited us to follow along. And Matthew 27 tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple that hid God's presence and separated him from his people was torn in two from top to bottom. God did it. God said the way is now open. Hebrews tells us that. The curtain is gone. The way is now open for us to approach God and to be in his presence. Some think the question here is who will worship properly here on this hill and be admitted to heaven, the holy place? Whatever the intention was, the question is simply this. Who can be with God in His presence? Who could possibly be acceptable? Who could, who could properly be accepted there? Who, therefore, will be ready when He comes? Psalm 15, a very similar psalm, is a great passage for you to maybe read this afternoon that, that covers a lot of the same topic. But when he asked this question, who will ascend the hill of the Lord, who will approach God, and who will stand in his holy place? That stand, that's Psalm 1, stand. That is not just, I am present here, it is, I have been planted here. I am standing steady and firm, I belong here. Who is it? Who is it that can approach the Lord and stand belonging rock solid in his presence? Well, David answers in verse 4, and he gives us four identifiers. Four things that need to be in place for us to be included. And these four work together to talk about inward holiness and, and outward holiness. Look with me. He who has clean hands. Clean hands obviously is speaking about our actions. We come to Palm Sunday and leading into Easter week and we hear the term clean hands and who do we think of? We think of Pilate, don't we? Pilate, the Roman governor who knew, knew he was guilty of condemning an innocent man to die. But what did he do? He declared his hands clean. 
as though he had the authority to do that. I'm about to kill an innocent man, but it doesn't matter. My hands are clean. That did not clean his hands of his actions. He could talk about it all he wanted. He stood guilty before his maker. Pilate declared himself guilty, proclaimed himself clean, like a little boy rushing in for dinner during the summer. He knows where he's been and what he's been up to, and he slides into the table and says, it's okay, Mom, my hands are clean enough. (laughs) I don't think so, right? Any moms here? Yeah, not going to cut it. I will determine when your hands are clean enough, right? Pilate did that. We do not have that option of declaring our own hands clean. Jesus said in Jeremiah, or God said in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22, through the prophet, you can scrub your hands with lye, over and over you can wash your hands with soap, your stain remains. Your guilty stain remains. You cannot get rid of it. Do you remember your high school Shakespeare? Lady Macbeth? Who helped her husband kill the king? And then is found by her servant sleepwalking in terror, relentlessly cleaning her hands, scrubbing her hands, looking down and all she can see is blood, convinced that there's still blood dripping from her hands, scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. And what does she holler out? Will these hands ever be clean? Her nightmare is our reality. Our hands can never be clean unless, unless, unless in the words of God through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1, we heed the words, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Our hands will never be clean unless we come to the only one who can clean them. The only one who can actually declare them clean. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and what? A pure heart. The heart is the center of our being. It drives us. It motivates us. It's where where stuff is really cooking and happening. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can really know it? No one really knows their own heart even. Our hearts have caused our hands to stain everything we touch with sin. And only Jesus can cleanse us. But guess what? He will. He will. Aren't you grateful for that? Who will ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. That lifting up the soul is an act of worship and and placing trust in something else. Psalm 25, the very next psalm, starts with the words, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Same concept. Who do you worship? Who do you trust in? What are you counting on? Is it God or is it anything else? An idol of your own making. Some false god. Vanity. Something empty. Anything that is not the Lord. Anything that's not the Lord. Who is it that you trust? Hmm. There's a picture of our prime minister yesterday in the newspaper at yet a different temple 
dressed like he had a different worshiper, bowing in prayer before he had a different God, tripping over himself to bow before any and every God as long as we'll vote for him. Wow. I looked at that and I thought, that's us. That's how we live, isn't it? So often, we chase down all these things that are not God. And we're told that the one who stands in his presence, the one who is spending time in fellowship with God, worships God alone. Alone. He who does not swear deceitfully. He who speaks the truth, not deceiving himself or others. Who speaks about lying or omitting the truth, or as one writer put it, our hair-splitting legalisms and our ingenious rationalizations. (laughs) Words whether spoken or written, tweeted or typed. Clean hands, pure heart, not lifting up his soul to what is false and not swearing deceitfully. Those are the four answers to who may ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his presence. We're in, we're good, all of us. None of us. None of us. Unless, unless the process doesn't stop there. He will receive blessing from the Lord, the smile of God, the welcoming smile of God. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. Some translations say he will receive vindication. I don't think that's the right translation there. That seems to say God's going to say, oh no, he was right after all. He's okay. That's not what we're talking about here. It's receiving the righteousness from God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? So that in Jesus we could become the righteousness of God. What does Romans 1 say the gospel is? For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. Not that we have earned or achieved, but a righteousness that God gives to us through faith. If you are in Christ, friends, if you are in Christ, you stand before God not on your own merits. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of His Son. Clean hands, pure heart, not lifting up your soul to what is false, not speaking deceitfully. He looks at you and He sees His Son. Hmm. This is the generation of those who seek Him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. It's not just for one person. It's not just for me. It's not just for you. It's not just for the generation back in David's day or or in in the, the day of the disciples parading into Jerusalem. It's for those people who will come together as the people for His name and seek His face on His terms. What's the next word? Selah. Exhale. Ah. Reflect and chew on this. Think about this. Is this me? Is this you? Is this us? Are we that generation that will seek his face on his terms? Come to him through Jesus alone and be declared righteous in his presence. Once we've identified the king properly and understand that God alone is king, once we are prepared to meet the king, Then what's left is to embrace and praise the king. Verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. 
Well, the question from the inside comes back, who is this King of glory? And the answer, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Think about that for a while. The Lord is the King of glory. We're told that in ancient Rome, when the king, the victor, the hero, arrived home triumphantly, the gates to the city would be open, and in fact, some of them would even be removed. As a symbol saying, we are not keeping you out, this is yours. Come in any way you want, come in, this place is yours. And as a way of communicating, we don't need those gates. Our protector is right here with us. We are fine. He is here. He'll protect, he'll deliver, we're good. The words being called out here by David are saying, open the gates and let him in. God is here. Friends, never ever forget who Jesus is. Even as we walk through and we read through the Gospels, maybe at home you're reading through the Gospels this week. I've been working my way again just through, through each of the four Gospels, the accounts of, of the triumphal entry right through to the end. And as you go through that, never forget who Jesus is. He is not only the humble healer, the gentle shepherd, and the effective teacher from Galilee. He is not only the one who was crushed by God as he was crucified on Good Friday. He is, in fact, risen. He is, in fact, returning. He is the King of glory. Not a king with a little bit of glory. He is the King of glory. King of kings, Lord of lords. That is Jesus Christ. Psalm 24 was a great psalm in David's day for people to sing as they were coming for worship, to be reminded that God is in control. God is the king. This is all his. He made it. We are his. He made it. We humble ourselves in his presence. We're reminded of of how we come to his presence. We're reminded of how we're to worship him and welcome him. It was good for them as they worshiped God. It was good for the people in the first century in Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday to sing this song as Jesus entered the city, to welcome him as they worshiped God. They didn't know what they were doing, but it's a fitting psalm. It's a fitting psalm for us now as we gather to worship God as his people collected together, as we gather to worship him and follow Jesus. And it is a fitting psalm for us not just now, but in the future when he returns to be declared king once and for all. Now we need to be careful when we come to the Psalms as to how we read Jesus into the Psalms and what we attribute to him. What is a messianic Psalm and what isn't? Many times in the Psalms when you see the word king, that's exactly what it refers to, David or whoever else is sitting on the throne of Israel. Many times that's what it's referring to. But Psalm 24 leaves no doubt who we're talking about. Right from the start, we're talking about the Lord. We're talking about the King of glory. 
That's who we're talking about here. It's quite possible, as some have suggested, that David, as he wrote this psalm of praise to God, was used to put layers in of prophecy that maybe he didn't even know. It's possible that verse 7 refers to Jesus coming home at his ascension. Open the gates, here he comes. Well, who is he? He's the one with the mission accomplished, mighty in battle. That verse 9 refers to his end return finally when he brings us all with him the rescued and redeemed who is he he is the lord of hosts coming to take his place on the throne of heaven revelation 21 tells us that in the new jerusalem every gate to the city will have an angel posted at it the question comes is this one of the conversations they're going to have when jesus comes Open up the gates. Here comes the king. Who is the king? It's not that they don't know. It's that we get to declare it again. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Well, whether there is a deep prophetic element to this intended by David or not, whether this is directed more to just that that worship at the temple that Solomon had built, The question remains, are you ready for the arrival of the king? Have you identified him properly? Do you know that God, in fact, is the king, period? You are not. No one else is. He has the only legitimate claim on your life. Are you prepared? Are you standing before him, not in your own merits, but in the righteousness of Jesus, because you've come to God through his son, the only way we are allowed to come? Are you standing in the righteousness of Jesus? Are you ready to embrace, embrace and praise the King here and now and when He returns? We we look forward to that day, do we not? Yeah, yeah. Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion will go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Does that not sound good? And as the prophet writes that, he says that is our hope in the future. But then he looks at his people and says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Why wait? Let's walk with him now. We look forward As the people who first heard Isaiah's message, we look forward to the return of Jesus, do we not? When he sets everything straight and everything is is brought together under his feet? Yes. But we join them in saying, why wait? Come, let's walk in the light of the Lord now. Friends, as exciting as that parade was on Palm Sunday, that parade entering Jerusalem, that will one day seem like a rather subdued affair when we witness the final, ultimate arrival 
of the risen, returning, and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. Do not miss it. Do not miss it. Today, this Palm Sunday, you and I can prepare for the arrival of the King by having a true personal encounter with Him now, understanding who He is, coming to Him on His terms that we might stand in His righteousness, not our own, and embracing Him and worshiping Him as the God that He is. That's Romans 10. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth what? Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. He is, in fact, the one who died for you and rose again. He's the only one that can offer you forgiveness in life. You will be saved. You will be saved. Understanding and embracing, submitting and surrendering to who Jesus is and what he's done, you can be prepared for the arrival of the king. Well, I urge you, if you have not surrendered everything you have in heart to Jesus, do not wait. Do not wait. And finally, we can... We can continue then, if that is you, we can continue preparing for the ultimate arrival of the king, I would suggest by preparing for worship each time we gather. Is it a response to who he is, a response to what he did at Easter, and as a rehearsal for his return? Every time. See, we're to worship him in spirit and truth, not just words and songs, aren't we? That's what Jesus says. Psalm 24, verse 3 asks two questions that are still great to ask before worship. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Friends, we are only here because of Jesus the Christ. Any of us, amen? We are only righteous because of Jesus the Christ. Are you grateful? And so we come to him humbly. We come to him together to worship. So I would urge you, every time we gather for worship, do you spend time in prayer first? Do you settle your heart? Do you focus your heart? Do you pour your heart out in need as he calls you to pour out your heart to him? Oh, there are things only you can do. I need you to do them. I need you to lead me through. Do you be ready to come and pour out your heart in praise? As you pray and say, Lord, whatever we sing today, just put, ignite that in my heart and help me to pour it out with everybody else. Well, we didn't sing my favorite song today. That's okay, we weren't singing to you. We didn't sing my favorite song today either. It's okay, you weren't singing to me. We were singing glorious songs that bring honor to God. That's what we were doing. That's what matters, amen? Do we pour our hearts out? Are we ready to listen with our hearts and surrender our hearts to what he says in his word? If so, then we come prepared for worship and we come as brothers and sisters, the rescued and redeemed walking with Jesus together, the rescued and redeemed waiting on Jesus together. As one writer says, living together as though Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back tomorrow. With that kind of a freshness and focus to who we are and all we do. Who is he? He's Jesus. The prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is he? Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. We have not gone to the trouble of arranging a parade as we end.
but we are going to sing his praises together. Will you stand and let's join our hearts and our voices as we continue to pour out our praise to him in song.